You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Everyone, I so enjoy reading and learning from others, which is prompting me to share a quote with you today. And I'm not sure where this one comes from. So think about it for a little bit. I can't give credit to anyone, but I thought it was quite funny in some ways. People who say they'll give 110% don't understand how percentages work. And everyone, you are listening to episode number 212. Today's guest has family ties which go back to this area in Jackson Hole several generations. Boots Allen is one of those folks who was born and raised right here in Jackson Hole and has the stories to prove it, which yes, Boots will share with us today. Boots is known around the country for his fly fishing knowledge, his fly fishing experience, and probably some of his stories as well. Because you know what? Every fisherman has some great stories to share. So how did someone obtain the name Boots? We'll find out today. And why does a well-known business right here in Jackson reside in a building which looks like a fort? Well, Boots has the answer for you, and he's going to tell you today. And when you listen to his stories, think about this. Would you be motivated enough to do the same? Boots, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I am delighted and excited to get to talk to you and learn about you and what is going on in your world. Well, it's great to be here, and thank you so much for having me, Stefan. You're very welcome. Boots, are you one of the rare folks that were born here in the Valley? I don't know if I'm rare, but I was born in the Valley, fortunate enough. And I think the way kids are sticking around now, there's going to be a lot more of us. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Do you live over in Jackson or are you over on the other side of the hill? I'm over on the other side of the hill. I lived in Jackson uh, through about 2006 uh, and then purchased some property here and Moved over here and been over here ever since, although sometimes it really feels like I'm still living in Jackson because I'm over there so much. I I understand. Now, where were you born? I was born in Jackson. I was born uh, in St. John's Hospital. Uh -huh. I grew, grew up on Flat Creek Drive, basically where, what is it, Staples and Obeck Sports are located now. And it's a very fun neighborhood. A lot of my great friendships I still cherish today, the folks I get to talk to all the time that I went to high school with and junior high with. They they all grew up there along with three of my cousins, just about three houses down from me. So it was a very wonderful neighborhood to grow up in. Fun, fun. I'm very curious. I love people's history. What brought your parents out here? Well, my father was born here. Yeah, he, he was born here. My How should I start this? My my grandfather, he moved out here in 1927, was working on Jackson Lake Dam, eventually started guiding in the 30s. He was living up in Moran, moved down to moved down to Jackson in 1937 and was guiding, started a, a fly shop called Fort Jackson River Trips, which is now the Spence 
law firm. If you look oh. at that, if you look at that building, it looks like a it looks like a fort, and that's how we. And my uh, father and my uncle started guiding for him and with him in in high school. My mother moved here from California in 1967, hearing about this really impressive ski resort somewhere out in Wyoming. And moved here then, was working at Jackson Lake Lodge. And when it closed in uh, September of that year for the season, she moved down into Jackson. And that's where she met my father at the Wirt Hotel. Can't think of a better place to meet somebody. I know. I, I go there often still to this day. Yeah. It, it is a wonderful, wonderful establishment. And and that was what year? 19? That, that they met? Yeah. Yeah, that was, they would have met in 1967. Okay. They got married. They got married a couple of years. How progressive of your mom from coming from California in 1967. <laughs> I mean, JHMR even then was like in its infancy. Infancy, exactly. I think they kind of had a rudimentary beginning in 1965. And if I understand it correctly, it was 1967 that it was, you know, going with whatever it had at that time. I believe the uh-huh. tram and a couple of lifts. I don't even know if the Eagles Rest lift at the very bottom was was up and running. But growing up in Central California, she grew up in in Paradise, California. Okay. And so she spent summer traveling to the coast and surfing, and she spent her winters just skiing her butt off even during high school. So one year she said she put $30,000 on her vehicle going to California ski resorts when she was 16, 17 years old. So, you know, kind of she was kind of in that culture. Uh-huh. Words, word is spreading, word of mouth that these things are existing out there. And uh, that's when, when she headed out. So now I want to talk about you a little bit. You grew up here right over on Flat Creek Drive. I mean, center of town, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's also you said Hoback Sports is I'm going to give the liquor store a plug. That's where the liquor store started. You're darn right it was. It was <laughs> right, uh, right across from uh, from my house. And I promise it was when I was the age of 21, that's when I would pop over there. And <laughs> I'm sure Pete and Jackie would have known you being in there when you shouldn't have been in there. They would have kicked <laughs> the tail out of there. You're darn right they would have. <laughs> now, as a kid, we all kind of do something that we're not supposed to do, but we did as kids that you probably couldn't get away with today. Oh boy. Do you do you walk around with a halo of your head or do you have a story that you want to share with us that well, maybe you still can't go to jail for? <laughs> that I still can't go to jail for. One summer, and I want to say it was it was July 1st was the date. We had a there was a really good kicking house party going on down on Fall Creek Road. And uh, we were having a lot of fun. I fell asleep there. Everybody fell asleep there at this party. And I woke up at about, I'd say, 530 in the morning. It's July 1st. There's plenty of sunlight. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm supposed to shuttle my father's vehicle on the river. I picked up the phone. I called him at home and said, I'm way out on Fall Creek Road. I don't have my vehicle with me. Can you come and pick me up? And he said, hell no. You get your butt here. You'd be here at eight o'clock. We need a shuttle. And was going through the house trying to find anybody that would wake up, anybody that would let me borrow their vehicle. It just wasn't going to happen. I was stressing big time. And... I decided to start running up Fall Creek Road, thinking I could make it up Fall Creek Road, all the way across Highway 22 to Jackson, 
and boy, be able to get there in time. Obviously, an utter impossibility in two hours. So I headed down the hillside, swam across Flat Creek, or Flat Creek, sorry, swam across Fish Creek, swam across the Snake River, got to basically the southern end of Skyline Ranch, not near as many houses back then as there is now. And I decided, started to cut progressively through private property, <laughs> cut through Skyline Ranch, got onto the highway, and that's where I started to run. I had 20 minutes to make it there. There was not a chance. And lo and behold, one of my cousins came driving up. He passed me, pulled over. He was towing his raft, and I jumped in and headed headed up to the shop and I made it there in time and luckily he was going to be guiding that day too with my father so it all worked out <laughs> I don't think there's many kids that you would find today during July that would just swim across Snake River Yeah but I was terrified it was I was I had to get there and yeah. I did it <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome I love it And how did you get the nickname Boots So it was a given middle name my grandfather received the name Boots back in the late 1920s when he came out here to work on the dam. And keep in mind, Jackson Lake Dam itself, the concrete structure by then had already been completed and completed for quite some time. What they were working on is the long piece of riprap that extends north from the dam up almost kind of towards Hermitage Point. But he was quite young and didn't get those full physical duties and whatnot. So he had other duties, which gave him a lot of time to play these horrible practical jokes. And I won't go into too much detail on these horrible practical jokes he would play on his fellow workers, but sometimes it involved Limburger cheese and sometimes it involved horse manure. But they knew it was him. And to get back at him one day, living in Moran, he was playing for the Moran baseball baseball team, which is mostly made up of folks who are working on the dam. They were playing in Jackson. At the end of that day, there was going to be this big get down dance party in Jackson. And he had purchased this wonderful, nice Western suit, with the bolo tie and great hats and beautiful, beautiful pair of maybe ostrich skin boots. I don't know exactly what they were. A very fancy pair of uh, cowboy boots. And he took that shower and got out and got all dressed up and went to get his foot into one of those boots and he stepped down and outshot cow manure all over the place, all over these very nice pants that he had purchased. They had obviously filled his cowboy boots up with horseshit as a, or I'm sorry, cow manure as a way to get back at him. And to remind him of that moment, they started to call him boots, which he took high offense to for the next couple of years. But after a couple of years, there was nothing he could do. He was just known as Boots from then on. I love it. And and so what are you doing now? Share with us. What am I doing now? I am basically uh, left graduate school after I finished up. I was at University of Texas. And I had been guiding throughout basically since high school and guided during college just as a way to pay for college. It was a lot easier back then than probably it is now. And after graduate school, kind of decided I did not want to go any of, the, any of those professions. I was essentially a demographer, didn't want to go into policy work. I didn't want to go into academia and really was just, you know, by then my tie to 
Jackson Hole and this region was just becoming more and more solidified. I'd had a lot of success in the fly fishing world with just various elements, getting a lot more requested trips. I'd signed a book deal by then. I was writing magazine articles. I had some some flies on the market. And I decided, yeah, let's give this a shot. And that's when I decided to come home full-time, bought this property over in Teton Valley, where I live today. And so today, what I'm generally doing, obviously, guiding uh, fishing trips is what I do more than anything else. I guide on the Snake River, the South Fork of the Snake River, guide up in Yellowstone, guide on Flat Creek, also get a guide on the Green River and New Fork Rivers, as well as the Salt River. That's what I'm doing mostly, but I continue to write. I've written a, a few books, mostly write uh, pieces for various fly fishing magazines. And every now and then I'll go and give some talks to different fly fishing clubs or different fly fishing shows and continue to tie flies. Most of the ones I do are through Montana Fly Company. So I'm trying to be as immersed as possible in the in the world of fly fishing. And I think I'm doing a pretty good job of immersing myself. Nice work. I'm sure your grandfather, Boots, he'd be proud of you. Yeah, he might be. He he really wanted me to go to college, which I did. Yeah. And I don't know if he would have wanted me to necessarily go into the fly fishing world, but I think he'd be fairly happy with where I am. And I, I'm very curious about the fly aspect of it. When you say that you're tying flies or you've had some fly patterns picked up, how long do those patterns make it? But like, what's the distribution of a fly pattern? I mean, is it going to be good all over the country or is it good for the region? Well, it could be good for the country. I would suggest most of them are regional. What I, I generally say is, you know, flies that are coming from other parts of the country, say the Catskills or Vermont, California, they'll work out here. That's not necessarily the same for our flies working there. We have very large aquatic insects here, larger than most places. So the fly patterns we tie are kind of that it emulates the that size. And so that real big circus peanut or that wing Chernobyl can do very, very well here. It may not necessarily do well on rivers in Michigan. But in terms of how long they last, it's a it's a solid question. There's a guy named Pat Bennett who developed a fly called the Pat's rubber leg. And that fly, you might be able, to, I, I don't think there's any question, it, the best-selling fly pattern out there on the market over the past dozen plus years. And uh, will probably remain that way for a while because it's just easy to tie, simply produced, and it does work everywhere. But there's a lot of flies I was using back in the 90s that I just don't turn to anymore. No doubt that if I did turn to them, they would work. We just have these other patterns that we can go to nowadays. Mm -hmm. It's an area that I'm not familiar with. I I had a bad experience fishing as a child. It was not <laughs> engaging. And I just haven't gotten past that at this point. Where I know well, the, fishing is different than I think we were bass fishing on somebody's lake behind their house. And I just have not provided the time to to get into it. Well, the great thing is you live in a place where you don't have to fly fish. We got all these other great things we can do. We do. We have a ton, ton of other things to do, Boots. Ton of things. So tell me about Snake 
river anglers. And so you're taking people all over the place. And as a, as a fly fisherman, you're, you're out there to teach people how to catch fish using the appropriate fly and what the casting and the tying, the knot tying. Can we start with the catch and release perspective? Does catching the fish and then pulling this hook out of its mouth shorten its life in any way? It can't. Yes. There, there, there's no question it can. And there's research out there that, that does, does say that. So when you are, you know, hooking your fish, you know, most of the time, in my experience, it's being hooked somewhere around the jaw, around the lip. But the further back it goes, you're getting into the, into the gill rakers. You know, so you can almost say the lungs to a certain way. And if those gill rakers, if those gills, I shouldn't really even call them gill rakers, but if those gills get pierced, it's going to be really hard for that fish to survive. And you can see those that are, when they're hooked bad, you know, they're hemorrhaging and it's, it's, there can be a lot of blood. It's highly, highly unlikely a fish will be able to make it. But as I said, the vast, vast majority of them, they're not getting hooked there. They're getting hooked in the mouth, but you can hook that fish. You can, you know, bring it to the net. And even if let's say that hook comes out all by itself, you don't even have to touch it. There's some things you could do that could easily harm that fish. Just squeezing that fish, let's say the folks want that, you know, that typical grip and grin photo. If they're not experienced enough, they might be squeezing that fish just with such pressure that it's creating some issues and damaging various organs within its body. So there's there's that aspect of it. The other two aspects, which I would say are even more important in this is that these fish are they're they're covered with a slime layer and that kind of protects them from bacteria you have gloves on or you have dry hands you're grabbing that fish it can strip that that fish of that slime layer and you're releasing that fish back in there that portion that you had touched doesn't have that slime layer on it it takes a long time for it to regenerate again as they get older they lose that ability to regenerate it and that's where you can get that bacteria and infection on the fish. Even more importantly than that is you catch your fish and you grab it with those dry hands. You know, you're catching a fish like right now, if I go fishing tomorrow, I'll probably be on Lewis Lake up in Yellowstone. You catch a nice fish. Say those folks want a photo. Say they don't want a photo. You just want, you have to handle that fish to get the hook out of its mouth. That water temperature is probably going to be about, you know, let's call it 48, 49, 50 degrees. My hands are going to be 98.6. You're burning that fish with those dry hands. So to guard against that, we do one of two things as you're submersing your hands in the water, not just to wet them down so to protect the slime layer, but you're also putting them in the water to cool your hands down to their temperature so that when you do handle them, they're not going to feel that burn. The other thing we'll do when it's cold in the winter, we will wear black nitrile gloves, basically surgical gloves. It protects you from, you know, the cold water when you're fishing. It protects you from the wind. It absorbs solar rays. So it does keep your fingers warm. But more importantly, you can submerge those gloves into the water 
and just pull them out and just rub them together. You can feel it's very, very slick. You're protecting that fish in the same way. That's a more important aspect than the squeezing part of it because you can avoid squeezing a fish by just not touching it as much at all. But the last thing that's very important here is that if you're, we're in this era now where our water temperatures are getting extremely warm. I never thought that we'd see a, an age where the Snake River would be going over 70 degrees at the middle of the water column. That started happening last year. And this year, there were even a lot more days than there were last year. So when you hook a fish at that water temperature, that water temperature does not have a lot of dissolved oxygen in it. So you can hook a fish, that fish puts up that fight. It's kind of like trying to run a marathon at 20,000 feet elevation. You're, that fish is just exhausting itself to death. And when you release it, let's say you don't even touch it, that fish could potentially could die once it's released into the water because of that fight. The best way to get around that is don't fish when you have that high water temperatures. Most of us use 68 degrees as kind of that tipping point. And we have now these gauges, thanks to Snake River Fund, we have these gauges all up and down the Snake River that tell you what the water temperature is at the middle of the water column at four different locations on the snake, three, three different locations on the snake. And we all carry water thermometers. And so when we're starting to see that water temperatures hit at 68 degrees, typically middle afternoon, that's when we stop fishing. And that's one of the big differences between now and when I started fishing. When I started fishing in the summer, you were putting on around 9.30. Now we're putting on at 7.30 because we're probably done between 2.30 and 3 o'clock. Hmm. It's nice to hear from somebody with your experience who can say that you've seen the progression of those water temperatures, but also I'm, I'm guessing that some of the insight that you just provided probably wasn't being pr practiced or known by your your grandfather or father and uncle when they had you know the fort jackson fly shop or is this newer information maybe in the last 10 years or 20 years yeah probably in the last 20 maybe even to 30 years really okay they didn't really have to contend with the water temperature issues because the water temperatures weren't getting up mm -hmm. like like they are now they're just it's not happening but but certainly back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, nobody really cared. You're just trying to get that fish and put it back in. And keep in mind that so many of them were keeping the fish they caught back then. You know, the catch and release was, you know, you could feel an inkling of it starting in the early to mid 1970s. Jay Buckner, one of the local entomology specialists here and a, a guy with a lot of authority on fly fishing. He's a good person to talk to about it. That was about the time you were seeing it. And it was a slow progression. My family was part of the old school outfit. And so they were keeping fish right through the right into the into the 80s, heck, even the early 90s. But but certainly you think about just the research wasn't really there. The thought was, hey, you release that fish, that fish swam away. That fish is fine. And that's not necessarily the case. So a lot of it just came down to, you know, fishery biologists doing this research, getting it into peer-reviewed journals, and then disseminating it to the public from there. And that, I would really say that that aspect of it was probably sometime in the 1990s that you really began to, you really began to see that. Boots, 
what drives you to be the fisherman that you are? For me, it's probably just, it's a, you know, I'd say it's a lot like surfing and skiing and that there's always with fly fishing, there's these, these, there's always these new things to learn there. Really? Yeah. That that's always happening. If you, if you think about it, just the, the spread of water that I have, I, I, because of the outfitter I work for, that outfitter has these permits that allows me to really go to a lot of different water to work on. And each one of those is so different than the other. What happens on the Green River is not necessarily what happens on the South Fork, which isn't what happens on the Snake. You got streams of different gradients, which really dictates how you're how you're presenting your fly and what water you're targeting and the way you're you're targeting it. They got different species. They got different hatches, different reactions to bait fish imitations. I get a guide on lakes, which is so much different than anything you get on rivers. The outfitter I work for in Idaho has permits further down on the snake, which I'm going to start to utilize to fit to guide folks for bass and carp because bass and carp is becoming this thing and has been for a while that's just it's it's so much different than trout and you fish for these other types of fish and once again you just learn so much more about fishing and then you're you know I'm hosting a trip say with some folks and we're going down to Mexico or Belize to fish for tarpon permit snook bonefish you're just you're learning so much more about the sport by fishing for the for those fish. This November, I'm going steelheading. I'm going to be using a different type of rod. I'm going to be fishing for different kinds of fish, using different kinds of lines. And there's always something new to it. So you're just constantly getting this new surge of information. And that's what really keeps it interesting. If, if it was just one of those things where I was working on one river with four sections on it, year after year after year after year, it would. I, I, there's no way I would last in, in, this, in this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about that would be a groundhog's day. I don't think I would be able to handle that at all. Hey, Boots, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. And then I have a few questions for you. You got it. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Boots, welcome back. I'm thoroughly enjoying learning from you about fishing and what your profession and your passion is. You just mentioned something about fishing around here for bass, and I think you said carp. Yeah. Yeah. And is that on the snake in other areas of the Snake River? Yeah, some of it. Not all of it. We got reservoirs that are close by, not necessarily on the Snake River, but within a, let's say about a two-hour drive. From Jackson itself. And are um, those native fish? Nope, those are not native fish at all. All those fish were were fish that were stocked here previously by the state management agencies. And and what's the feeling now 
do they still stock those non-native fish and are having those non-native fish, does that cause a problem to the ecosystem in any way, even though it's yeah. on a reservoir? Yes. Yeah, no, it, it can kind of depends on obviously where it is. Our main concern with the impact on the ecosystem is the impact, at least for me, is the impact on native trout. Mm. Yeah. And the native trout here is the cutthroat. Yeah. Snake River fine spotted cutthroat and Yellowstone cutthroat. That's that's the main concern. That's the main that's what separates this place from just about every other place is that you can fish is that we have these great cutthroat trout species that are just so fun to go after and are so different. But you can use this as an example, one particular reservoir. It's a walleye fishery. That's how it's managed. Both those of us who fly fish were going after bass. It's on a reservoir. Before that reservoir was there, it was a creek dumped into a particular river, and it was all cutthroat trout. And they built that reservoir several, several decades ago. And now it's not. It's it's not a trout fishery at all. You're pretty much going there to fish for these non-native fish. And that's okay. I I don't have a problem with that part of it. What what I do have a problem with is when you have a native trout fishery that that we've had just very recently and then it's being compromised by the introduction of other species. So for example over on the South Fork of the Snake River, it's a native trout fishery, a native cutthroat trout fishery and that's how it's managed. About 20 years ago, you had this massive massive upsurge of rainbow trout non-native rainbow trout. When that occurred, uh, the Yellowstone cutthroat trout population began to nosedive. And uh, all of a sudden, there were more rainbows than there were cutthroats. I personally have a real issue with that because you look at all the data, all the research, and you look across the spectrum of the Rocky Mountain West, which only had cutthroats at one time. When you do have rainbows, you know, mixing with cutthroats, those cutthroat numbers begin to drop and drop and drop. And there, there's a couple of reasons for this, particularly on the South Fork. One, you get hybridization. You get the cutthroats hybridizing with the rainbows. You create a cut bow, a wonderful fish to catch. But that genetic diversity of that, that genetic integrity of your Yellowstone cutthroat throat population then just gets decimated. But there is a competition part of this too. Rainbows typically spawn a month earlier than your cutthroats. When that occurs, the rainbows will have basically that one month jump, one to two month jump on a cutthroat during that first two years when they're just little fingerlings, little fries. And it's the equivalent, this is me saying this, of an 11-year-old boy fighting a five-year-old boy. It's it's a world of difference. That 11-year-old boy is going to win all the time. And so on a river like that, where you have an actual viable cutthroat trout population, it's important to keep that. And you have to do something about these non-native species, such as rainbow trout. At the same time I say that, the Henry's Fork, right up the road from me, I can get there in about a half an hour. That was all cutthroats at one time. About the 1890s, 19, early 1900s, it became all rainbow trout due to stocking. And I'm fine with that too. 
because we've had a century now, over a century, you know, a century and a quarter of that river being a rainbow trout fishery. And so what I advocate for, what I argue for is diversity. That's what I'm arguing for. I I want places where you have the chance to catch native fish. And I and I I want places where you have a chance to catch these other non-native fish. And, and both can exist. They just can't necessarily exist in the exact same river. That that makes makes a lot of sense. You were talking about, well, it it does make a lot of sense. And I appreciate you explaining it with such detail because I think unless somebody really is involved in the fishing world you you don't know the difference Mm -hmm. and and what is a native or or why it's there you mentioned steelhead fishing and i lived with a guy once who was a big steelhead fisherman and explain to people what the steelhead is is that a and also are you fly fishing for those things because that can be a big fish yeah and yeah and why are you fishing for it at this time of year of when you're about to go. Yeah. So yes, the I am fly fishing for him, like almost all other fish, you don't have to, but it is the way I fish for him. I fish for him with what's called a spay rod. It's typically a, a much longer fly rod. The ones I use are between 13 and 14 feet in length using a seven, eight or nine weight. You have lines that are configured to these rods based on their action and based on their length, much like a single-handed rod that we use here. And you're you're swinging your flies to them. Instead of casting overhead, which you can certainly do with a spay rod, you're doing some exaggerated roll casts, of which there's you know a couple dozen at least. I typically rely on four or five of them. But what the steelhead is, it, it's a rainbow trout that is ocean going. It's, it's an anadromous fish. So these are rainbows that are born in rivers or in creeks, and they reach a certain level of maturity and they drift down to the ocean, and that's where they're going to live for quite some time. And they're in the saltwater, and the ones that are, you know, coming, I fish, I fished up in British Columbia for steelhead. I'm nowadays fishing primarily Washington and Oregon, some sometimes Idaho. And so these fish are going into the ocean, and they are going all the way over to the Sea of Japan, the Sea of Otosk. They're spending time over there. And then they're getting ready to, they hit that, there's that hormonal trigger that they get and they spin around and they begin to make their way back to their home river. That's the one they're typically going back to. And they are getting drilled by predators and they're getting drilled by fishing nets and there's getting drilled by warm ocean water and there's all things all types of things that can go wrong on their journey home (laughs) and a lot of them a lot of them get taken out but depending on the river several hundred or several thousand will make it back and they begin to make their way up these rivers and pretty much depending on who you talk to they're they're going darn near right back to the exact same spot that uh, that they were they were born on basically the same gravel gravel bed or within the similar proximity. So uh, if you think about this journey, here I am in Victor, Idaho, right now. In three and a half hours, I can drive to the Salmon River. I can drive to Salmon, Idaho, and that river gets traditionally a run of native steelhead. And you just think those fish are going from the ocean up the Columbia River, up the Snake River, down to the Salmon. 
running up the salmon. And then once they go all the way up to the salmon, now they've gone hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Then they might be making it up a creek like Panther Creek or Pershimeroy Creek and going up there for several, several miles. So it's a stunning fish. It's a it's a fish that's really hard to catch on a fly rod. It used to be, you know, the if you got one take, if you hooked one in a day, that was considered a good day. There's so many factors that can go wrong. You know, you, you could be there and the fish haven't even made it up yet. You could be there and there's something going on with the moon phase that if that's okay, they're there, but they're not really that active. But they're a pretty amazing fish. And it's a fish that, you know, for some people, it's changed their lives. I had no idea. <laughs> I only knew about the run, but I had no idea about starting in the freshwater, going to saltwater, making it all the way over to Japan, and then back over this way. What a life. Yeah. And to survive all that, what a life. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's an amazing, one of the most amazing stories out there regarding fish. And are there many fish that start freshwater, go to saltwater, and then come back to freshwater? No, I, I wouldn't say there's many, but there there are definitely some steelhead. Pacific salmon, so you know, Chinook, Coho, sockeye salmon, chum, they go to the ocean and they then return to pretty much the same story to the same spawning bed. Atlantic salmon do this. I used to guide down in Argentina in Tierra del Fuego, and what we were targeting, which was the only fish on the river, were sea run brown trout. So these are brown trout that were born in the river, went to the ocean and came back. And the same thing, very large fish, you know, 20, 30 pound fish. And then on the Pacific coast, uh, Washington, Oregon, you do have also up in uh, British Columbia, you have sea run cutthroats. You have a certain species of cutthroats that are sea run that will go to the ocean and, and return going up rivers. A little bit earlier in the show, you were saying how you've written some books mm -hmm. and you've also um produce some magazine articles. Are you still writing for any publications or online? Publications, yeah. Yeah, so mostly who I'm writing for now, it would be the Drake Magazine. Uh, strictly freelance stuff is what I'm doing. So I'll submit a piece to the Drake. And if the Drake is like, yeah, we'll take it, then I'll complete that piece and send it on to them. The Drake is a real interesting magazine because it's not a how-to, where-to, when-to type of magazine. It's a magazine more involved in, you know, the why aspect. Why are you fishing? What's going on out there? They do as much about congestion of rivers and streams and as uh, much as on conservation as as, as they do anything else. My latest article came out in the Fly Fisherman magazine just, just recently regarding winter fly fishing and its growth and why it's happening the way it is. And I've uh, written for uh, probably the online magazine I've written for the most is Gills Fly Fish International and a hodgepodge of, of articles for them, sometimes how to, where to. Some, some are more conservation oriented. And when you have clients who you meet on that you're taking out, what do you want them to take away from the experience when they're with you? It would kind of depend on who it is. So many of our guests nowadays are not necessarily visiting Jackson Hole. They live in Jackson Hole. They live in Teton Valley. They live in Swan Valley. They're living here because partly because fly fishing is one of the things they love to do and they love being guided. So for folks like that, you know, some of them actually been guests on your uh, podcast before, but a lot of them, they're going out there and they're like, 
I want to catch this. I want to try and get this many fish on this fly today. Or I really want to try and get to this size mark. I want to, I want to do that. And some of them just want the experience. They, they want to hit that piece of water that they haven't been on for a long time. So for example, yesterday I was on the South Fork of the Snake River, way downstream. I fished basically was guiding where the South Fork of the Snake River meets the Henry's Fork and continues down as the main stem of the snake. And those guys, I guided them everywhere in this area. This was their first time doing it, and they wanted to do it. Fishing was mediocre, but they loved it. It was the that, that experience they really did love. Some of them are going to learn a different technique. So there's some I'm taking out because they really want to learn streamer fishing. Streamer fishing is fishing with a bait fish imitation, or you're giving a certain presentation to it where it acts like a fleeing fish or a wounded fish. Typically, that's what you're doing. And some of those folks are just, that's what they want to do. If they catch four fish in a day, they don't mind. They're learning something. The important thing is that fly fishing can be all of those things. It can, it can be a day where you want to go out and get numbers. It can be a day where you want to go out and get size. It can be a day where you just want to experience something different. And it can be all three of those things in one day as well. And I would imagine you get to see some of the most magnificent scenes and, and river, be on the river in some of those magnificent places in North America. Yeah. And especially this area. Without question. I mean, you just think about it. I've, I've had to, you know, I got to guide in Argentina. I've fished in russia and central asia i've fished in kazakhstan and mongolia i've fished throughout the caribbean there is nothing like this when you you get the aspect that you're catching a truly unique species of fish let's say on the snake river truly unique fish on some of our our lakes and then you intermix with that the idea that we have this intense wildlife population here the wildlife you're seeing while you're fishing not every day but some days and some days it's just over the top and then you got that landscape you've got that scenic value there's literally nothing like it anywhere in the world that i've ever been fly fishing wise and and most people would tell you that as well i think who fly fish so to wrap things up today with, I want to get into what you just led into. What is a most memorable or remarkable wildlife interaction that yeah. you've seen while on the river? Yeah. People always ask me, hey, what's the, what's the greatest story you have from being in your boat? <laughs> but you nailed it down there to think that I, I think is something a bit more pinpointed and, and, and definitely something worth mentioning. You would expect, you know, someone to say, this interaction you had with a bear or a moose, you know, something like that, you know, these truly gigantic, you know, charismatic critters out there. But the most memorable I, I had, and it was not that long ago, I want to say it was probably 2012 or 2013. So let's call it a decade ago. I was floating from Pacific Creek down to Dead Man's Bar up in Grand Teton National Park. It was about this time, I want to say it was the last week of October. And so basically about a week earlier than where we're sitting right now. 
And what's the wildlife doing? They are migrating and migrating heavily. It's, this is one of the best times you can be out there to watch, to, to see wildlife. And uh, we were cruising down. And as we got just the river hooks and it almost looks straight up, you're almost looking due east at Triangle X Ranch. There was a rather large herd of bison. And they were in the water and they were crossing right in front of us. And cross at the right kind of place. The river can be a bit on the shallow side there. These are big creatures. They could cross anywhere they want and be just fine. But it was just about perfect because we saw them crossing. We were heading right to them because of where we were. We were able to drop the anchor and partly so you would not run into them, obviously. But we were probably 15 meters away from them. We were very close and they just continued across in this line. I want to say we weren't counting, but it felt like there was 120 to 140 that just kept crossing, kept crossing. And I still have that video, I think, on my phone. But it's one of the more impressive things that I've seen. And that question you asked, that's the right kind of question to ask because <laughs> other, others just ask the, they just want to hear some stupid stories. That was a very good question you asked. I, I'm just trying to, I've seen buffalo cross the road and I've seen the herds out there, but I, I'm just want to just, I mean, if you have that video and you could share it, that'd be so fun. To yeah, see. I'm going to try and find it. I've got to still have yeah, it somewhere. Um, yeah. But gosh, just the the experience to drop anchor and be there to see and feel the nature of, of all of those buffalo crossing the river right there. Just so powerful. Yeah. I mean, now it was a uh, at its best right there. Yep, absolutely. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Boots. I appreciate it. You bet. We do have to wrap it up. If people want to connect with you, Boots, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me, uh, it's probably just via email. That's uh, very simple. It's boots at snakeriverangler.com. All right. And your books, can people find them in the local bookstores? Yep, they can find them at local bookstores. They can find them at most of the fly shops yeah, out there. Shop one, unfortunately, is out of print, and it's one of the funnest ones I've written, just regarding the history of fly tying within the region. But all the others are out there still in print and still going strong. Awesome. I so appreciate you sharing your experiences and your knowledge today, because I have a different perspective of fishing. And I think now after speaking with you, I have more of a desire to give it a try. I can't say that I'm going to go for it right away, but I've, I'm more interested in it now hearing from you. Well, give it a shot. It's a, it's a fun thing to do. It is, it can be life-changing and always remember if you don't like it, look where you live. You got some great things to do here other than fly fish. We, we do with that. We do with that. Boots, I appreciate what you do for the community and the fishing community and just contributing all around. So thank you. And it's a great honor to get to talk to you today. Take care. Thank you so much, Stefan. You got it. Take care. Bye. To learn more about Boots, Allen, and his life right here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com episode number 212. Folks, thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is successful because you talk about it with your friends and share these episodes with your friends. Thank you so much. 
share it Facebook, conversations over coffee, however you want to. Like listening to episode about Bruce Houghton. I think he was episode 13 back in 2018. Can you believe it? So thank you to my wife, Laura, and to my boys, Lewis and William. And of course, to my marketing director and editor, Michael Morey. I so appreciate the time everybody gives to me. And cheers till next week when I see you right back here for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.